Welcome back. We're talking about the killing of Jesus. We're going to answer this question now that we brought up in the last part of the program. What motives were involved in the killing of Jesus? Well, sordid, petty, little sins that most of us folks practice. Would you come over here to Matthew 27, verse 15 to 18? That's the text in the New Testament. Matthew 27, verse 15 and onwards. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew they had handed him over because of what? Because of envy. Not a really big sin, is it? Not like murder, just a little sin. Most people have got a bit of envy in them. The Jews were envious of Jesus because of his popularity. We're talking about the Jewish leaders. Because of his power, his influence, they're the same sins today that you find in politics. (laughs) Uh, Envy. Also, not only, I'm talking about politics in the church. Politics in the church and politics in Washington, in the world. Then there was Pilate. Pilate's big problem, of course, was job security. You know, if you let this man go, you're no friend of of Caesar's. And so he said, well, I guess when it comes to the bottom line, it's better for me to keep my job than to follow Jesus. Also, pride. And that doesn't seem to be such a big sin, does it? Pride. People don't go to jail because of pride. Look at John chapter 11, verse 47. And onwards, my dear friends, John chapter 11 and verse 47 and onwards. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man's, this man works many signs. If we let him alone, everybody will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This was a form of nationalism or racism. You know, we're the greatest nation in the world. And if anything happens, we're going to lose our nation. That's a very common sin today. These sins, these sinners... Well, not so different to you and to me. Not big glaring sins, but the common nasty little sins of the common people. Do Bible-believing Christians believe in slaughterhouse religion? The moral influence theory. Let me talk about it. The people who believe in the moral influence theory, and it, it is centered really, any place in the world where it's centered is Southern California. The moral influence theory says this, does a loving God demand a sacrifice before he can forgive us? They say, I forgive my children, we forgive our children without demanding a blood sacrifice. God forgave the prodigal son when he came home without demanding a blood sacrifice. 
Why would God demand a blood sacrifice on the cross? Gandhi said, Jesus was a great example, greatest in the world. But he said, no one can die for the sins of another. And the Muslims, of course, say exactly the same thing. No person can die for the sins of another. Liberal theologians like Dr. Leslie Weatherhead, who wrote the marvelous book, The Transforming Friendship, said this. The idea that a loving God demands a propitiation and a blood sacrifice, this idea is a pagan idea that crept into the church. And he said, all enlightened Christians will give up the idea of propitiation and a blood sacrifice to atone for the wrath of God. I want you to notice some texts. I want you to think about this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look at me. The Bible teaches, this is the most unpopular teaching in the world today. The Bible teaches that God is righteous and holy, and therefore he has a righteous wrath against sin. The Bible says the wrath of God is revealed. Otherwise, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Please tell me. Why did God destroy the world of the antediluvians? God is not a big woolly teddy bear. He is a God of love, but the Bible tells me he is a God of holiness. Now, would you notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us, what does it say? From the wrath to come. So the concept of God having wrath is a concept that is taught in the Bible. The Bible says when Jesus comes and destroys the wicked, it, it will be as an expression of his holy wrath. Um, very unpopular doctrine, but it is true. Come over here to, um, uh, what else can I show you? Come over here to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at me. The most important characteristic of God is not his wrath, but his love. He is a God that is full of love. Otherwise, why did he come down and die on the cross for us? So he's, he's full of love, but the Bible says he is a holy God and therefore he has wrath against sin. Now I come to the most important truth that I can explain unto you. And this truth will withstand the powers of darkness. 
God in Christ, God in Christ took our sins upon himself and satisfied his own justice and his wrath against sin. I want you to think about it. I want you to come over here to one of the most important passages in the Bible, and that is the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. And if you want to be saved, you need to understand and read the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. The Bible tells us the whole world is guilty before God because we have all broken the law of God and we are all sinners. The Bible says, For all have sinned, that's every one of us, and fall short of the glory of God, that's every one of us. Being justified or declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. This is a correct translation in the new KJV and in the old KJV and many other translations. The Bible says that Christ was a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. The cross demonstrates his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. The cross demonstrates his righteousness that he might be just. God has got to be just. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the Bible tells me that Christ hanging on the cross was a propitiation, and it was necessary so that a righteous God could be just when he forgives our sins. Now this is called uh, the doctrine of the atonement. Otherwise, please explain to me the cry of dereliction from the Son of God when he hung on the cross and he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was this theatrics or were these the wanderings of a demented mind? No, this was a soul. This was God in Christ taking his own medicine and bearing the sin of the world. That is why the moral influence theory has been damned as a heresy by all mainstream Christians. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, which is one of the most amazing, disturbing texts in the Bible, written by Paul, the great Jewish scholar. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. But when we break it, we come under a curse. The curse of the law having become a curse for us. Christ a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the Bible teaches that when Christ was hung on the tree, the Bible said he was cursed for us. Now these are disturbing texts, but they show the mind of God. Charles Ryrie, the Bible scholar, said this, 
Propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Let me explain this to you because this is the very heart of the Bible and this is the heart of the character of God. The Bible tells me that God must be just because he's a righteous God. He's not just a teddy bear that you can play with. And the Bible says that when we sinned and broke the law of God, we came under the wrath of God. The Bible teaches this. But the Bible tells me this, that on the cross, God in Christ provided satisfaction for his holiness. You know, a mother sometimes says to a child, I want you to take this castor oil. Child says, it's awful, it tastes bad. The mother says, let me take some for you. So she takes her own medicine. God on the cross demanded righteousness. When man sinned, God demanded righteousness because God is a righteous and a holy God. Don't you understand that God cannot live with sin? People say, but everybody is going to be saved. That is the doctrine of the devil. It's nowhere taught in the Bible. The Bible says when Christ comes back, he, it says he comes back with wrath and he destroys a world that has turned away from him. But what a tragedy because Christ died for the sins of every man, woman, and child so that every man, woman, and child can be saved and go to heaven. And the greatest sin of all is the rejection of the cross of Christ. And so on the cross, God suffered the vengeance of his own holy nature. It wasn't a case of God pushing out an innocent son and saying, you go to the cross and I'm going to stay back here and I'm going to watch it all. Not at all. God was in Christ and on the cross, Christ, the Bible says, became our propitiation. And he paid the price. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. How did the affairs of David, and especially one affair, how did the affairs of David, king of Israel and his family, help me to understand God's problem and uh, the gospel? I look you in the eye and let me tell you something. People today play with sin because they have no idea that sin means death. And when Christ took our sin upon himself, it was death and hell. And crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the last cry of the last person who dies shut out from the kingdom of God. 
without Christ. Either he bears our sin or we bear it alone. Why do you think he came down? These are the characters in our play. There's David. He is the king. Now the king has got a special job. When he was the king of Israel, the people of God, David had one great job, uphold the law. David is the lawgiver. David upholds the law. Then, number two character, a beautiful, not totally innocent woman. Her name is Bathsheba. And David sees her taking a bath and uh, on the top of the roof. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 2. Here is the text. Then it happened one evening that David, the person who upholds the law, the king, arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now the first look was not sin, but when he said to his attendant, find me the binoculars, then it was. And so the first look is not sin, but sin indulged is another thing. Now, this beautiful woman, not totally innocent, has a husband. He's a good man. He's one of David's mighty soldiers. His name is Uriah. He's not even an Israelite. He's a Hittite. And so David tells him to come from the battle. He comes from the battle and he says, now go back to your house. You know why? Because the woman had already told David, sent him a letter, I'm pregnant and you're the father. So the king calls in Uriah and then the Bible tells me he gets him drunk. Why does he get him drunk? So he gets him drunk and he says, now go home. But Uriah says, no, how can I go home when the ark of God is out on the field? So he doesn't go home. So what does the king do? King murders him. Hmm. His job was to uphold the law. Then David had a lot of sons and daughters. One son was a young guy by the name of Amnon. He's got a half-sister. Her name, goodness me. Her name is Tamar, and she's, is, she's a beautiful girl. And this young guy, this young guy, Amnon, deceives her, rapes her, rejects her. You know what David does? The Bible says, the Bible says, uses the word, David is furious. What does he do? Nothing. You know why he does nothing? He does nothing because of what he's done mm -hmm. with Bathsheba and also Uriah. He was a man who was supposed to uphold the law. He represented God. Then there's the dandy. His name is Absalom. He's the brother of Tamar. 
he becomes tremendously indignant, rightly so. He's a beautiful young man. He's got thick hair. Every time he has his hair cut, it's five or six pounds, the Bible says. So he plots. And there's a big party at Absalom's house. He says to the king, uh, can all the king's sons come? Will you come? And David says, no, no, my son, you just go ahead. So there's the big party. They get Amnon drunk. And then Absalom says, kill him. So they kill him. What a story. This is in the Bible. Absalom escapes. The king grieves and wants his boy Absalom back. But do you know what he does? Nothing. Finally, David allows him to come home. What should the king have done? Justice. Uphold the law. And then when Absalom gets back, like the devil, he undermines the king's authority. And soon there's a tremendous rebellion. And I want you to notice how it finishes. 2 Samuel 18, verse 7, 14 and 15. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. We won't read the rest, rest of it. Absalom is caught hanging up in a tree. They throw darts into his heart. There are 20,000 widows, maybe 50,000 orphans that day. 20,000 killed. You know why? Because the king did not know how to be a king and a father. You see? So what does a father do? Well, a father loves. Father loves. What about a king? He loves. He upholds justice. Now think of God's problem. God is a father. Therefore, he loves. God is the judge. God is God. What does he do? He upholds the law. What is God's answer to our sin? Because God did a lot better than David. What is God's answer? Well, God loves us like David loved his children. But God becomes a man. And God is punished for the sin of the world. So God upholds the law as he loves us. That he might be just and the justifier of the person who has faith in Jesus. This is called the true gospel. Anything less is a heresy and a lie. This gospel forgives my sin and God says I am just because I've borne it. And it changes my life like it did for Luther. He couldn't understand this for years. The Roman Catholic priest couldn't understand it. And one day he was found kneeling before a crucifix and crying. It dawned upon him, the justice of God, the atonement. My God, my God, he is saying, for me, for me. That's the gospel. Now here's another text. 
from the days of David. 2 Samuel 14 and verse 14. An amazing text. Look at this. Here are the words of the wise woman from Tekoa. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, look at this. He devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. God works out a way. We've got to die, the Bible says. So what is God's answer? Well, God becomes a man. He bears the sin of the world. He bears your sin and mine. This is why today you and I ought to run to him. We ought to run to him. Because if, you, if we reject this, what is there left, I ask you? We ought to run to him. Because it shows you how great is his love. If there had only been one sinner, you my friend, you my friend, only one sinner. Can you believe this? If there had only been one sinner in the world, there would have been a cross. And a crucified God, a crucified Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that I might never be forsaken. He he suffered the wrath of God against sin so that I could be justified by faith and have peace with God. This is the gospel of God. Amen. Hi there, I'm John Carter in Havana, Cuba, this communist fortress. We're here to preach the gospel of Christ to the public. But more than this, we are running a school of evangelism and biblical studies for the Cuban pastors. 140 pastors coming from right across this wonderful island. And they're coming to join with us to study how best we can meet the needs of the Cuban people. The Cuban people are just the most wonderful people. They're warm, friendly. And I'm amazed that in the meetings every night that we are taking, that I think most of the people there are young people. Now, of course, when I say young people, I mean people up to say 35 years of age. (laughs) Uh, They're young to me, but they're so warm and they're so receptive. And when they come forward night by night to accept Jesus, They come with tremendous sincerity. So what a privilege it is to be here in the land of Cuba. But remember to pray for the pastors. 140 pastors are coming from Guantanamo Bay and other places right across this island nation. They're coming to join forces with us. Think of this. They're coming from Guantanamo Bay and everywhere. We're going to meet with them, study with them, pray with them, to devise the best means of reaching this nation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for being my special partner.
For a copy of today's program, please contact us at P.O. Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358. Or in Australia, contact us at P.O. Box 861, Terrigal, New South Wales, 2260. This program is made possible through the generous support of viewers like you. We thank you for your continued support. May God richly bless you.